You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to this, the 127th episode of the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Victor Marks, and joining me is Neil Hughes. Victor, how are you? I, you know, I am amazing. Today, <clears throat> I'm a little for Clint. <clears throat> Today is a very special anniversary for us is here it? at Apple Insider. It is. Today is the sixth anniversary of Google+. Oh, man. I am, I'm choked up because, well, you know, Google Plus was revolutionary. Google Plus took all of these disparate Google offerings. It took, it took photos. It took, uh, it, it took Google Plus, the social network, which came out of, of the ashes of Google Buzz. It took YouTube. It took Hangouts. It took everything. And it combined every Gmail account into this one, one platform across all the services of and all of the offerings. It really, it, it revolutionized what a digital hub that Google has been for us. And this, this June 29th, where we're recording this, <laughs> is the sixth anniversary. And Vic Gundotra brought it all forward for us. I realize you're being facetious because for those listening, this is actually the 10th anniversary of the first iPhone. But before we get to that, you, uh, I will you say everything. I was going to have fun with that. I, I will say that uh, Google uh, Plus uh, does have a special place in my heart, and not ironically, um, because uh, uh, about five years ago when I got married, um, at the wedding, we used Google Plus for people to share and upload photos so you could have a collection of photos privately in the same place. And so um, this was before Facebook events was like really a big thing or uh, now everybody uses like hashtags on Instagram to be able to find all the pictures. So uh, what we did was we printed up uh, cards that were at everybody's uh, place at setting at the um, uh, at the reception, but also like went out in a email that went out prior to the ceremony as well. And it was like, here are the instructions. And what was funny was I wrote Google Plus is kind of like Facebook, except nobody uses it because I was explaining, you know, to a bunch of people that have no idea what any of what, what, is, what is the concept of Google Plus, right? The, and so right. you know, basically, um, we we used it um, there, and it worked out great. We got thousands of photos from you know all the people that were in attendance at the wedding and uh it was a really great and now you know like i said everybody's just got instagram hashtags and stuff like that but this wasn't um that wasn't much of a as much of a thing back then and google photos uh in um google plus was actually kind of ahead of its time it was the one feature of google plus that was actually very good so Google Plus set out to become the better than Facebook, and that was their actual stated intention was right. we're going to be like Facebook, but better. Mm -hmm. And the better part was that they said in, in Facebook, you're one person and all of your friends are all equal friends and they can all see what each other sees, which doesn't work. And their, their, their example was this really sort of embarrassing example, right? They said, what if you're a school teacher and you're friends with your students, but you're also friends with your, your friends from the bar? Mm -hmm. And you want to, and you don't want your students seeing your friends from the bar because you'd like to stay employed. And Facebook eventually added all these features anyhow. And the of truth of a, they did. the truth of a social network is it, the features don't matter if there's nobody there. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the well, that's that's uh, literally called the network effect, right? Yes. <laughs> and and so Google Plus's standpoint was that you you separate your your lives into these different circles and. You'd have your circle of bar friends and your circle of students, and they would never meet. And, of course, it, it totally worked out for them because no one put anyone into circles, and therefore they absolutely never met. 
But uh, Photos still does this cool thing where they do the the remember when, the throwback pictures, Mm -hmm. and they'll assemble neat montages for you out of the pictures that you have. Mm -hmm. To the point where if you had a bunch of pictures taken in rapid succession, they'll even turn that into an animated GIF. Right. And the inventor of it calls it GIF. I don't care. I I know you don't. (laughs) uh, Well, let's talk about something that people actually do use, and that's the iPhone. Right. So... (sighs) You know, this this is interesting. And I was... We, we've had 10 years of iPhone mm-hmm. today. And you and I both used and both still have the original iPhone. Mm-hmm. It, it, for me, it's no surprise because I, I have all kinds of old technology that no one cares about and is defunct, including, of all things, would you believe that I have the Pearl backup camera license plane frame, frame plate thing that was done by Formop Engineers? Oh, well, there you go. I have one of those things. Boy. Yeah. Very cool product, by the way. It's it's too bad that it hasn't worked out for them. But uh, the iPhone did work out. So the iPhone set a number of different revolutions in motion. The iPhone was, was based on things that existed before it, obviously. But at the same time, it put them together in a way that was unique that we hadn't had before. Mm-hmm. You know, we'd had, we'd had touch screens before. We'd had capacitive touch surfaces before which Apple bought in order to make the touchscreen. The, uh, the TouchWorks guys made keyboard replacements for Macs that uh, used capacitance touch and could do 10 fingers at a time. The, we had app stores before. I had a Nokia phone with an app store on it. Um, but none of these things were actually human approachable. They, they weren't very good. And, and it, at the introduction of the iPhone, I knew I had to have it. When, when I was at Macworld, when it launched... It was clear that it was it was absolutely the next phone I was going to have. At the same time, I uh, I had a manager that I worked for back then who insisted that he was never going to get an iPhone that it wasn't ready for consumption because it didn't have picture messaging. It didn't have MMS, therefore it wasn't okay. Right. And he he eventually came around, but to to my great uh, great embarrassment, he put up a blog post on the company blog stating why he was not going to get an iPhone. Well, and it's important to remember for people, too, that that first iPhone, as as revolutionary as it was, was not exactly a breakout success. It took a few years, really, for Apple to get to the point where uh, it was a phenomenon. I think they sold one million iPhones in the first year. Um, that, that first design was uh, only ran on 2G networks. It was slow internet. It didn't have... Uh, messaging, uh, picture well, messaging capabilities that didn't no, record no, 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 video. No, stop, stop right there. You say slow internet, but you have to remember that before that, we were on GPRS. My Nokia with an app store was on a GPRS network. Oh, that was slow internet. The, well, the 2G that, network was fast for the time. Well, that was actually what I used my, and that was my 10-year piece that I uh, published today that people can see on Apple Insider. Uh, my first experience with the iPhone was I was on... Uh, T-Mobile. I had been a customer since the voice stream days because it was cheap. And so I waited until the iPhone not only dropped in price by $200 because they had overpriced it when they launched, but I also um, waited till the hackers had jailbroken it. And so it was probably that September, I think, after it came out that I bought my first iPhone. Um, And I used that thing for four years, I guess it was, until I replaced it. Uh, But I used it on T-Mobile's uh, GPRS slash WAP network, which was basically a, a hack for port forwarding, where it was taking um, HTTP data uh, and 
forwarding it was running everything through port 80 essentially so um, uh, any apps or any services that were using another port that the phone was hacked to run it through there and the reason I did that is because on T-Mobile uh, that internet service the base bone bare bones internet service was five dollars a month and that was all I could afford and and WAP for readers for listeners who don't know WAP and WML were a a sort of uh, web application way of providing the internet to feature phones and flip phones. Right. Yes. The the goal was to be able to reformat web pages for flip phones and be able to use the two yes no kind of buttons at the top of the flip phone pad. And, to, and the way that the carriers the, web. the way the carriers got away with with offering that bare bones service was they only allowed one port to go through. And so when you well, wanted to access services that were something other than a website, they didn't work. Right. But the, the traffic was so limited anyway, because all you were doing was loading straight HTML and all of it was machine processed by uh, WebSphere. Oh, it was it was WebSphere, WebSphere machine translation because WebSphere machine translation ran in the background on a server somewhere at the carrier mm-hmm. and would take the big real web page for the desktop and realize that the requesting device was a flip phone that could only handle monochrome JPEG mm-hmm. at the very most, right? And it would suck it in and reformat everything for that tiny device. Right. And uh, so I, I was at IBM in 2000, 2001, and worked on WebSphere. And that's what was running in the background to support WAP for all of those things. And so you only had to open port 80 because that's all of the HTTP traffic. Right, but non-HTTP services worked when I when I jailbroke my phone because it forwarded all traffic through it. Yeah, that was unintentional. That was well, that was <laughs> that was unethical, is what it was. Really, it was not what T-Mobile uh, intended uh, when they were selling me a five dollars service. But you know, at the time, I was I was a year out of college. I had I wasn't making very much money. That's for sure. I couldn't afford. You know, these data plans. It's easy to forget now because everybody just pays for them and that's it. But like. You know, there was a time where you didn't pay uh, $50 plus a month to have a phone with a data plan. You, you Right, right. But back then, data was, was cheap, but voice and SMS were exorbitantly expensive. No, data wasn't cheap back then. No way. It was, it was like $35 yeah. a month to add a data plan on. Okay, but you were... You were doing, you know, your $5 plan. Yes, I was... That was something I could... That I could swallow. But your voice and your SMS were ridiculous. Yeah, well, yeah, you had limited minutes. Um, but if you were calling another T-Mobile customer, for example, then, you know, they had all these, like, gimmicks and stuff. But, yeah, back then you paid for the minutes and you paid for the text messages. Now, it's... Well, we, sh- we should clarify. In America, you played paid well, for yeah. the text messages. In Europe, well, we are talking text about the messaging was... Launch, ch- it launched first in America, so... Yeah, but so there's there's the, all the whole different market kind of thing, right? In in the U.S., voice was cheap and SMS was exorbitant. Right. Relatively, let's say. And in Europe, voice was very expensive and SMS was cheap. And so there were a number of, of European users who got very good at T9 texting input. And Americans never did because the econ- you know the economics never forced us to. Right, yeah. And that's why Twitter is limited to 140 characters is because Twitter initially launched as a service that you would use by posting through SMS, which is the limitation on SMS messages. Mm-hmm. And so... There were a number of Europeans in in 2007, 2006, and 2007 tweeting using SMS, using T9 text input right. to do it. And, you know, that's that's the iPhone changed all of this because the iPhone made text messaging easier for Americans. 
you have a real keyboard, you have a keyboard that adjusts to your input because it's a graphical keyboard instead of a fixed keyboard. You have, you know, and before that, if you were an American and you were doing text messages, you were a BlackBerry user. How long did you keep your first iPhone as your primary phone? Uh, not very long, and that was by virtue of my next employer. Uh, I worked for Griffin, maker of fine iPhone cases everywhere at the time. Mm -hmm. And at Griffin, I, I cobbled together a iPhone 3G out of parts that had been dissected to, to uh, you know, evaluate what was going on inside with the antenna. Because one of the Griffin products back then was a case that you put on your, your first iPhone and it passively coupled to the antenna in the original iPhone and gave you better signal strength. I remember. It, yep. it, sounds, it sounds like voodoo, I know, but because they mirrored the exact shape of the antenna in the case, as was on the inside of the phone, they passively coupled, and they were able to boost the signal reception of the uh, the iPhone. So you're saying it's better than those stickers that you used to get at a, that a gas station well, it's that the you same put kind under of the battery theory. on your phone? It's, on it's your flip the same phone? kind of theory, except that those stickers don't match the size and shape of the antenna that's in your phone, so they don't actually work. When you copy the shape properly, it does make a difference. All right, well, <laughs> we don't need to get into antenna gate, but uh, but but never mind that. So so you know we had we had they'd taken apart on the bench an iPhone 3G to make decide if it was worth evaluating and, and making the product for the 3G, and the result was that it commercially didn't make sense because people didn't buy it exactly because of the gas station commercial, and. So they left the iPhone in parts on the bench. And I, I got crafty one afternoon and went and reassembled it and used that phone as my primary phone for so a uh, reassembled for a time. iPhone 3G. Yes. Got it. So did you at any point, I mean, I know you've dabbled with uh, Android phones for work and stuff over the years. At any point since getting the first iPhone, have you um, switched your primary phone to be anything other than an iPhone? I have used an Android phone when traveling. Mm-hmm. You know, I I was in Israel for a month last December and a couple of weeks last summer, and uh, I used the the Huawei Nexus 6P as the primary phone while traveling. And was that because it was unlocked and it was easier to get service internationally? What was the, what was the justification behind that? Uh, the justification behind that was. I could drop a SIM in it and have it work without taking the SIM out of my iPhone. Mm -hmm. Um, I could have used the SIM in the iPhone, but then I wouldn't have gotten calls or messages or iMessages on the American number. Got it. So it was a matter of, of not losing the U.S. communication at the same time. The because see you don't have this because you're a T-Mobile customer, but if you're I'm a not Verizon, anymore, no, <laughs> no. But as a Verizon user in the U.S., all Verizon handsets are unlocked by default. Yeah. There are no SIM locks on Verizon handsets, so I could have dropped the SIM in without question. Uh, T-Mobile customers in the U.S., the handsets are locked to T-Mobile, and there are a number of conditions that have to be met for them to consider unlocking them. Well, the, when the customers. iPhone first launched, it was it was locked down. I mean, Oh, yeah, they was, were all locked. Well, the iPhone initially launched on AT&T. Singular wireless. Mm, singular wireless at the announcement, but right. AT&T by the time it they actually changed launched. changed the branding, yes, by the time it launched. Well, they got bought. They, they changed the branding, and then all of the baby bells started getting swallowed up again. Right. Even though the uh, new AT&T is not the original AT&T, they're actually different companies. Well, yes, but AT&T. 
What are you going to do? <laughs> the, uh, but, you know, it's, it's no they... longer Bell South. Bell South begat Singular begat AT&T, right? Right. There's, there's no uh, Mid-Atlantic Bell or Bell Atlantic, as it were. Uh, there is there is no South Pacific Bell or or SBC, right? Xfinity. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, all, all of these things, they all changed. Well, it's important but, that for people to remember that the first iPhone, the reason that it was locked down and was on AT&T was because Apple was new to the smartphone business. They, were, they had never done anything like this before, and they had a very different approach. Carriers have always had the power. They have the power to put apps on your phone to put their logo on it to all that kind of stuff. And Steve Jobs wasn't going to take any of that crap. That, that just wasn't his style. Right. And so in order to get the leverage to be able to do what they wanted with the iPhone, which was ship it without any apps being forced on it, nothing being shoved down the customer's throat, no logos on it from anything other than Apple, they agreed to basically sell their soul to AT&T. And so the irony of it is... Well, there's I, a story before that story, actually. Okay. <laughs> so... First of all, at one point they were considering building their own network. They were considering doing, you know, whether or not to do an MVNO and and light, you know, leases bandwidth and lease service from other people, or to just literally build their own network and roll out. That's, that's impractical. It was totally impractical. And at the time in their history, they didn't have the bank that they do now. That was so never going to happen ever. It, it, there, there was no practical way to pull that off. They went to Verizon, and they rocked up at Verizon. And at this time, all they had was you know, barely a prototype. Right. It didn't have an iOS as such on it. They had the you motor know, rocker. Well, no, never mind the motor <laughs> rocker. The, the motor rocker was one of the things that convinced them they had to do this. If right. you look back at the Apple Insider archives going back to this time frame, you will find that there are a number of rumors back then about touchscreen tablets. Right. Because that's what they were working on. And, and you know, people talked about, well, there were, there were tablets available that were modified MacBooks that instead of a uh, traditional MacBook, they'd flipped the screen over and put a Wacom surface yeah. on it yeah. and turned it into something called a ModBook. Nice. This was not what Apple was building. No. Apple was working on building the first iPad. And after the, the disappointment of the Moto Rocker, they shifted gears and were convinced to build the phone instead. Right. But we had the rumors way back then about what this was becoming. So they, sh they, they showed up at Verizon. And when the problem is this, right? You show up for a meeting at, at the cell phone company, and you're meeting these executives and trying to talk to them about taking your handset. And it's not just like talking to the buyers who, who shop accessories and, and stock accessories into the stores. You're meeting, you know, high-powered people. Mm -hmm. And they wear suits, and you're from Southern California, and you show up in T-shirt and jeans. <laughs> There's already a culture clash and and the ability to not be taken seriously, especially when your phone prototype isn't running your final OS, so you don't have a whole lot to really demonstrate. But let's let, let's be clear. OS. So Telecoms are the worst. This wasn't just a culture clash. This is a, this is a, uh, a a culture of crummy companies. That, yes. That's what it is. Fair enough. But so they they showed up at Verizon, and Verizon said, um, first of all, your stuff doesn't even work. Right. Second of all, you've got nothing to demonstrate to us that we can actually see. And third of all, you know, you're, you're not taking us seriously. You're in T-shirts. You know, there's just you're, and fourth of all, you're not going to give us any kind of control or branding on the phone. Every Verizon phone sold had the Verizon branding on it, and we're not going to put that on there. Take a hike. Get out of here. So they went to AT and T, and AT and T, despite them rocking up in T-shirts, despite them showing up without anything to demonstrate, because even as 
recently as December, before the January keynote, they did not have enough iOS built to, to demonstrate for the carrier. It was it was that down to the wire. The um, you know they they were still showing I think the uh, the the sort of testing kind of mm-hmm. thing and saying look it's going to be a phone <laughs> you know and they got AT and T to agree to no branding they got Singular rather to agree to no branding but uh, by the time the phone had launched Singular was gone and the executive that had been on stage for the keynote in January was no longer even at Singular. He didn't make it to the AT&T transact- transition. <laughs> it, it happened kind of accidentally, but everything worked out for the best for Apple because not only did they get control of the platform and really get to stand out in a certain way that other companies just didn't have the leverage to do. And of course, they had to sell their soul in order to do that, and they were stuck with AT&T for, forever. Uh, but also because they were with AT&T, it was a GSM phone, which meant that as they did their international expansion, it worked well. Because if they had started out partnering with Verizon, they would have had to completely redo the the architecture of the phone in order to do international expansion because Verizon runs on CDMA and that's not really a very popular uh, wireless form factor, frequency, whatever you want to call it. I think there are like four countries that use that kind. It's uh, So that's code division multiplexing. Right. Is, is what CDMA stands for. And so Verizon is unique in that way that they run something that almost nobody else runs. And so by actually partnering with AT&T, that allowed Apple to very uh, easily roll out internationally as they started to launch the iPhone in more countries as, as the years went on. And so that's why it was a big deal when the, when the iPhone first launched uh, on Verizon, not until 2011. Uh, that was the first time that you could actually use an iPhone on Verizon because unlike myself, jailbreaking and running on T-Mobile because T-Mobile was a GSM network, there was no version of the iPhone that had hardware compatibility with Verizon. Apple had to make and redesign the entire internal of the phone to have a CDMA uh, radio in it. So um, that, yeah, that they was... had to go to Qualcomm because Qualcomm owns a lot of the patents around CDMA. Right. So the, the irony of it is by, by partnering with AT&T, it worked out very well for Apple because all the carriers international that run a GSM, it was very simple for them to get the right frequencies and to, and to launch on their networks. And if they had gone with Verizon, you know, who knows, revisionist history, but things could have gone very differently. It could have been a major technical hurdle for them to uh, expand internationally and to make two models of the iPhone, especially with the position the company was in. And and you got to remember, the first year of the iPhone, that first generation model, they only sold like a million in that first year. It didn't really take off. So, uh, you know, if they had to uh, to make more aggressive moves at the start there, it could have been a very different picture and you could be ta- we could be having a very different conversation right now. Yeah. So the the thing to know, I mean, th- there, there's two things I want to do. First, I want to ask you, what were your, your core applications and core uses of the iPhone as it first launched? Well, um, for me, uh, there was a lot of tinkering with it because I bought it the day that the jailbreak and um, uh, T-Mobile hack were announced. So I went to the AT&T store, I brought it home, and there was no, they hadn't like uh, streamlined the process. So I had to SSH from a Windows computer, they didn't even have it available for Mac at that point. I had to SSH from a Windows computer, uh, type in some terminal commands to, to hack it, break it open. And so a lot of my experience um, with the first year of the iPhone uh, because you got to remember the App Store didn't launch until the summer of 2008 when the 3G launched. So there was no App Store for that first year. 
So a lot of my experience with the iPhone was actually uh, uh, messing around as developers started to create their own unofficial third-party apps. I know that jailbreaking years later uh, developed a reputation for people just stealing apps from the App Store, but in the beginning, it was a very exciting time. Um, and one of the first apps that I installed on my phone that I would show to people and was really impressive was, uh, uh, and this is going to get really confusing because there's a different version of the Microsoft Surface now, but back then, Microsoft announced a product called the Surface that was a big table. Coffee table. And uh, one of the demos that they had that people were really excited about was the use of multi-touch where they had photos on the table and they were like showing them off and you could resize them and slide them around. And so some very enterprising developer uh, that was, you know, early on in the iPhone and in the jailbreak community made an app uh, before the App Store was out that replicated what they did on the Microsoft Surface table. And it was simple. I mean, now you think about it, and it's like, well, that's stupid. But at the time, it was like mind blowing. And so I had photos that I had taken, and they were all just kind of laid out on the screen like they were on a table. And you could slide them around and then pinch and expand and make them bigger or smaller. And I mean, it was such a small thing, but it was just so cool. And then um, another one was somebody made one of those, you know, those labyrinth games where you got like a marble and you got to roll it around. Around. Yeah. Uh, somebody did that with the gyroscope on the phone and it was like it was a very rudimentary thing but uh, you know, and so not only did I have an iPhone, but I was doing things with an iPhone that other people couldn't do. So I had a lot of fun, um, you know, modifying things, you know, adding wallpaper, uh, you know, even like putting the T-Mobile logo up in the corner and stuff like that. Things, things that you weren't supposed to be able to do. Yeah, and that's that's what people did. So back then, there was a time when people liked to add ringtones or liked to create ringtones. Right. And, and Apple even created a ringtone maker within iTunes that honestly, I wish they'd kept. I wish they'd never taken that out of iTunes right. because that was pretty cool. Um, they, they sort of later shoehorned it into GarageBand and it got worse. They, they had, um, th this was a time when people liked to theme and customize things. My phones before the iPhone were an Ericsson, a Sony Ericsson T616 which I bought because it said it worked with iSync, and it did. And I was able to change the wallpaper to look like the OS X 10.3 uh, wallpaper. But that kind of novel stuff was exciting at the time because it all was. this technology was. was new. It was like um, so, you'd never you know, be able people, to do anything like people that. People downloaded the Big Boss repo or Cydia for, for uh, iPhone jailbreak just to be able to load themes. Right. Now, what I wanted to get to was that the, the iPhone deserves some credit for another point, and people don't really think of this a whole lot. People don't really say this out loud a whole lot. And that is, we've had 10 years of this thing, right? And in 10 years, ignoring jailbreaking, <laughs> there has been no widespread malware that has affected this thing. Mm -hmm. there, there, there have been exploits, right? There have been, uh, there, there have been some exploits that we've talked about that law enforcement, for example, likes to use against specific phones. But they have to have physical access to the phone, so... Right, but there there have there, there have been occasional things, right? There's been a worm here or, or one there, but there have been apps been, that have been compromised. Mm-hmm. But there's been no widespread crippling malware vulnerability. Yeah, I mean, the worst thing that you have on the iPhone that happened, and it was really just sort of something that people did as a joke was there was a string of characters that you could send via text message that would crash the phone. And that was, you know, three or four years ago or whatever it was. And that went around and it was patched almost immediately, but it was like something people did to like prank their friends, like, ha ha, going to crash your phone here. But I mean, that's really the worst of it that I can think of. 
I mean, we talk about computers, and and we talk about computers. We talk about traditional computers, and there's, you know, there's all, there's been viruses for years, worms and trojans for years. The latest thing has been this this terrible uh, thing where where you know like WannaCry or the the other one where they encrypt your data right. and then ransomware it back, right? And the the iPhone and other iOS devices have not been afflicted with anything like that in ten years of history. That's kind of that's that's incredibly noteworthy, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. You know, we we've talked in the past about how this is the future of computing and how Apple sees it as the future of computing, and the idea that your device is, you know, not not to make too much of it, but let's say nearly impervious, right? So far is pretty incredible. I mean, I think that that alone is, I mean, you can talk about all the things that the iPhone changed and it changed a lot of things, but I think that the security of the platform and the ease of use, it it, it is something that we will feel for decades to come because, you know, we've talked about, uh, you know, like how I want to get more on the iPad. I want to be exclusively computing on the iPad. I've been pushing my parents to just use their iPad because I know it's a secure platform. When I go on their Windows computers, I don't know what they've installed and I got to fix things and they end up with, you know, all kinds of junk on there. Even to this day, you know, with with as as much better as Windows has gotten compared to the XP days and stuff. And it's still like I I tell my parents, I I got my dad the the new $330 iPad and I got him a keyboard. It's like, please just stick on this. I know you can't screw it up. You're not going to install anything that bad. You're not going to you're not going to break anything. You're not going to get hacked. You're not going to have it it really. It's a game changer for if if you put them on Windows 10 on the the whatever starter version they call it that only allows them to install applications from the Microsoft store. (laughs) Yeah, great. Won't they? Won't they similarly be okay? I think they're still on Windows Seven. I told them not to upgrade because I didn't feel like explaining to them how Windows Ten worked because they don't do very well with change. So, yeah, I mean, oh, okay, so you can't give them an iPad instead. I got it. So, I, my dad has an iPad, and I keep telling my mom to get an iPad. I'm like, Mom, your life would be so much easier with an iPad because they just don't like computers. Because they don't, you know, you think about what computers are for now, right? The, the Mac, the PC, whatever. It's power user stuff, right? And you wonder how many people are on a computer using keyboard shortcuts. I use them, you know. I'm command tabbing. Uh, uh, and I'm, you know, command T to open a new tab in a window and I'm, you know, uh, you know, whatever else you're doing, right? You got all these keyboard shortcuts, uh, uh, copy paste type stuff, whatever. How many people use computers and don't even know that that exists? Many. Most of them, probably. And those are the kind of people who, for them, an iPhone and iPad um, is is a better computer. And even for somebody like me. Stop the train for a second. Sure. Aren't you concerned about iOS 11 and the changes that brings to iPad for your parents who don't like change? Uh, no, because it still operates generally the same way. So I think that the intuitive nature of iOS makes it so it's not it, – there's not a lot I'm hidden. I'm thinking specifically about the dock. Yeah. So the dock and is just – I mean, think about it, right? So if you have a dock now, it still operates the same way. The apps stay down there. In iOS 11 – the dock is there. You can swipe up to access it, and you can do these multitasking features. But if you don't use any of that, you just press the home screen, and there's apps in the dock. Just tap on them, and they open. All right. I, I don't. I, I don't see it being that big of a deal. But that's what I like about the growth of iOS, and you see you see these features coming out now. Let me take the same question I asked you about. You know, copy and paste and command tabbing and all that. How many people on an iPhone? know about the, for example, uh, control center swiping up from the bottom of the screen. Do you think most people use that or do you think most people do not? 
I feel like that is a 70-30 split. Yeah. Because there are a number of people that I've seen use it that I I would have been, uh, that I was honestly surprised. Yeah. And they were using it for do not disturb for rotation lock flashlight and music. Flashlight's a popular one. Flashlight's a popular one. But yeah, the thing is, and, and, and I agree with you, I think more people are using it on an iPhone and even an iPad because it's more intuitive uh, than a keyboard shortcut. However, uh, there are probably a significant, I would love to see Apple's internal data on this because you know they've got stuff on this, right? I would love to see how many of these power user features nobody's using because for us as power users, we love this stuff. We like it when iOS 11 is coming, they have a dock and the multitasking and all that. It's great. But the number of people that use it as they get more of these power user features is going to be, you know, is diminishing returns in many ways. Um, so I, I find that very fascinating and I find it uh, exciting as, as, they, as they grow this. But for a lot of people, I don't even think it matters. Yeah. You know, this is the, the, you know that they have data on this, right? That's why dashboard has kind of gone by the wayside on the Mac. Right. No, no one was using it, but me. Yeah. And I I have to say, uh, you know, we, we've sort of been talking around all of this, but for me, this, this particular episode is kind of a a love letter to Andy Grignan. Andy Grignan was on the first iPhone team. Mm Mm-hmm. He was he he played a huge role in the first iPhone. Um, he spoke recently uh, with a bunch of of other people who developed the iPhone about the development of the original one. He the one he related the story about the drinking game at the uh, original iPhone keynote, where every time a feature worked and it didn't crash, they took a drink in the front <laughs> row. Um, and he was also the guy that was behind dashboard on the Mac. So so everything we're talking around here. I mean, Andy was at the center of that. And uh, I, I think he said recently that the first iPhone was the reason that his marriage failed. It's it's a huge thing trying to push out a revolutionary product like that. And, um, you know, we shouldn't forget the developers that were behind it. The, the people that really gave serious parts of their lives to this whole kind of thing. We, we're, we're benefiting from this as users, but it's... Um, there, there is definitely a, a large number of, of humans making it come together. And it's not just the software, it's the hardware. I mean, there were so many different pieces that had to come together to make this the game changer that it was and still is in so many ways. I think the irony of it is, after 10 years, uh, the, the feature that is now less important than ever on the iPhone is the fact that it's a phone. Oh, yeah. And, you know, that was the when I asked you which features caused you to purchase the, the original thing, the visual voicemail was my. See, I didn't get that. I, I, no, I couldn't get that because that. that was AT&T. Yeah. Yeah. But visual voicemail, I took one look at that and realized that I could fast forward through messages and that I could listen to them asynchronously. I would never have to press four, seven or nine again in my life. Four was delete message. Seven was reverse message or rewind. And nine was fast forward to the next message. Mm-hmm. To not have to ever deal with that again and be able to see who had called and take them in the order that I wanted to was hugely important to me. I had never of even course. owned a smartphone before the iPhone. So for me, just the ability to text people without having to do the T9 texting was pretty awesome. Um, and and obviously the ability to browse the web from wherever was incredible. Oh, I had two maps. different Nokia I mean, Symbian. I Yeah. I'd, I'd been doing I didn't, you know, the for a first, while. The first, iPhone, the first iPhone didn't even have GPS, but it could triangulate your location uh, through cell 
towers. So I remember I, I uh, was visiting New York and I didn't know how to navigate the subways and it still knew exactly where I was, even though it didn't even have GPS in it. I mean, it was it was it was game changing. Oh, I used that to navigate from the middle of nowhere in Virginia. So I went on a road trip. I had two weddings in the same week. Um, not my own, obviously. I, I went <laughs> to a wedding in Ohio. And then while I was in Ohio, a friend from high school said, hey, I'm getting married. Can you come? And so I, I'd driven up there carpooled. So I rented a car on the way back and drove into the middle of nowhere in Virginia. Literally, I, I miles away from any major road. And I, I, you know, it was it, the directions for, for getting there were, you know, go down this road, then turn on this dirt road, then turn on this, this trail and cross a railroad track. And you'll know when you've gone two miles, you've gone too far kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I got there and they had the wedding and we all went to doubt to dinner. And that was kind of it. It was, it was a very small thing, very on the fly. And so then I'm driving back in the middle of the night no earthly idea where I am. And the only things I've got in the car for tools are the iPhone, the iPhone's compass, and the maps. And there's no signal. And so I'm a blue dot in a, in a sea of graph paper <laughs> trying to navigate country roads that aren't very well marked. And, you know, county road this and, and state road that. And state roads are nice because state roads are bigger, but, but county road that you have no idea where it goes, right? Mm-hmm. And I just kept turning south and east, south and east, and occasionally a map would load on the screen. I'd be holding on to it for dear life. By about like 2 a.m., I hit a road that I recognized the number on, and I just stayed on that thing the whole way. And it was, it was one lane each way with, you know, people's mailboxes right up to the side of the road. And eventually I got back to civilization. But it was... It was uh, a lifesaver. Oh, yeah. I, I don't know, you know... Map reading is a skill that I think has gone by the wayside, right? We used to have paper maps, and we used to know how to look at them and navigate them. And to be able to do that in the car as a co-pilot, or when I, was in, when I lived in Israel, I drove a scooter. And I would drive to Jerusalem or Haifa or, you know, all, all these places on this scooter. And I had a map, and I would pull it out and read, and, and then, you know, navigate and go. And now, no one reads the map, we just have turn-by-turn -turn directions that tell us where to be. Could you go back to navigating with a paper map? Uh, I could, but I, I think there's a whole generation of people that will have no idea. So th there's, you know, we talk about all the, the industries that were shaken up and, and things that are gone because of the iPhone. There's one I never thought of. The companies that would print paper maps for AAA. Well, maps like the AAA maps or, or you know, Rand McNally. Remember Rand mm -hmm. McNally? Mm -hmm. You know, the these companies... Were, were map makers, but I don't know that they were other, ever considered especially valuable, right? Right. But companies like Navigon, um, you know, TomTom, Tom, yep. uh, Nokia, who had all that map data, mm -hmm. that became hugely valuable. Google didn't want to pay for any of that map data, so they went out and they mapped the world on their own, right? Mm hmm yeah, Apple still licenses from TomTom Tom and companies like that for their maps. Apple data. still licenses from TomTom, Tom, even though they're also now driving the world. The the value of maps went up immensely. You know, Nokia's maps sold to that conglomerate of car owners, right? Car manufacturers. Mm -hmm. I think Mercedes was among that list. Uh, you know, wh whoever thought that maps would become that important, but it has. I've got my first iPhone in my hand here. And when I pull up maps, 
Uh, aside from being astonished that it can actually get my location, even though it doesn't have a GPS. And by the way, I charged this thing like four days ago, and it's still at 60%, so that's pretty impressive. I mean, it's not like I've been doing much with it, but the, the one thing is if you zoom out... Yeah, but it's out, a 10-year battery, too, so... Yeah. If you if you zoom at just the right level where it's out enough, but in that they have enough of like landmarks and whatever, the, the low resolution screen is so bad, and like you can't, you literally cannot read these fonts. They're so bad. You zoom in a little, it gets bigger, and then it's fine. But there's a certain size that it just doesn't work. But you know, pinching and zooming and and loading the data and all that. I mean, it still works. I mean, it's still the same basic experience. Here we are, ten years later. And, you know, it's just as impressive when you think about it compared to what was there before as it was then. I mean, it's it's here it is all on this first device right in my hand. Yeah. And you're using the Google Maps data there, too, which yep. eventually Apple went to war with Google over. Yeah, but it's got it's got my actual location down to it even has the privacy thing. I just have to get my location. It says uh, Google Maps would like to access your location. And it's like it's got me right on my street corner. It's it's got everything here. It's it's uh, all it's it's really impressive. What you ought to do, Neil, you ought to put a SIM card in that thing and use it as your primary phone for a week. So that's the problem. First of all, I think that AT and T stopped supporting the first iPhone, like with uh, whatever data it was connecting 2G to. Two G network. But also. Um, the SIM cards are no longer that full size. They're they're micro SIMs. They're adapters. Come on. I'm sure that they're adapters. <laughs> I would. What I could do is bring it with me and keep my iPhone and my my primary iPhone in my pocket, and then just tether this to it. I could do it like um, uh, fancy iPod Touch. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, that's all you really need is is just a data connection for it, and you can do whatever you want. Well, it won't get SMS because it doesn't have iMessage. That's true. That is true. I would lose all my text messages. That would be very difficult to do. I'm saying. Cool. Well, let's let's keep going here. I'm going to do a quick ad read. I want to let you all know about Shutterstock. Support for today's show comes from Shutterstock. Every business needs high-quality images to attract and keep customers. And whether you're making brochures or advertisements or putting the final touch on your next tweet, the visuals that you choose are proven to make a big difference. Get started today with a 20% discount at Shutterstock.com slash Apple Insider. We should talk a little bit about Qualcomm. Okay. So Qualcomm has demonstrated an under-display ultrasonic fingerprint sensor that they are saying will be ready for consumer devices for use in the summer of 2018. <laughs> that is next summer. Yeah. And so these, these are fingerprint sensing devices that work under the display on the front they work under aluminum and glass on the back. They can be used in, in you know, any kind of orientation there. That the, 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 the details are that it has to be through either 650 micrometers of aluminum or 800 micrometers of glass. And will work under 1,200 micrometers of OLED display. Each use of material gets a slightly different sensor, but the thickness of the material matters in order for it to be read through. Um, it can also detect heartbeat and blood flow. So you can see, is the fingerprint real? Is it a live fingerprint? And also you could pick up, you know, medical information out of it if you needed to. Um, Qualcomm says that they're using a trusted execution environment, which sounds a lot like Apple's secure enclave, but mm -hmm. however, it doesn't have to necessarily be encrypted end to end. Um, they're going to work with Snapdragon 630 and 660 processors. 
And Qualcomm has stated that it will support non-Snapdragon platforms as well. We've seen this before. <laughs> How many countless times have we seen this? Apple's rumored to be working on something and everybody's rushing to market to get it out before Apple so they can beat it. That's really all this is. Um, th they've pre-announced something that is going to come in the summer of 2018. There were some hands-on impressions of this thing this week that said it's very slow. Um, and really all this is, is Qualcomm reading the tea leaves and just knowing where the, where things are heading and trying to get a jump on it. That, that's all it is. We've seen this with wearables. We saw it when there was a false alarm with TVs when people thought that Apple was going to make a TV. We saw it with smartphones after the iPhone was announced and people saw what it was and Android completely changed direction and, and what it was doing. We saw it with tablets when Apple was rumored to be getting into the tablet business. Everybody was pushing out these tablets. You know, we've seen it over and over and over again. Now, now you see it with, you know, uh, wireless headphones and stuff too. This is no different. This is the same song and dance that's happened before. The difference is this thing isn't even shipping until 2018, summer of 2018. Apple's rumored to be doing their version of this this fall, and none of us know how well it's going to work or what it is until Apple announces it. Not yeah, even Qualcomm. Let's, let's take a different spin on this quickly. Okay. Different spin is that people follow Apple and people jump where they think Apple's going to go next, and we end up getting product categories that are totally different than than we would have had if people hadn't suspected Apple were going to do this. Right. And I think this is a good thing. No, it's a very good thing. It's just, it's funny how transparent it is. Okay. So... It is Apple dictating things without Apple's name even being mentioned. Great. Let's move on to the next one. You have a public service announcement. You want to talk about external GPU compatibility. Yeah, so I was looking into, I, I would like to get a new MacBook Pro. I would like to mess around with Apple's eGPU capabilities. For those of you who don't know, external graphics cards are going to be supported in High Sierra, but it requires an external monitor uh, because it doesn't have the bandwidth in Thunderbolt to loop it back into the, the screen on your iMac or your MacBook Pro or what have you. So you have to have this external graphics card powered by Thunderbolt 3, but then you have to have a monitor. There are only two monitors on the market right now that uh, are in mass availability that uh, qualify as retina caliber uh, monitors. Uh, and those are the LG Ultrafine monitors, the 21.5 inch uh, 4K and the 27 inch 5K. They're the exact same re resolution and size as the iMac. The problem with that is the 21.5 inch is driven by USB-C and the 27 inch is driven by Thunderbolt 3 and you need to have mini display port for any yeah, reputable or display port or HDMI. Yep. So if you actually want to use an external monitor, uh, you're actually going to with the eGPU, you're going to be stuck with a lower uh, pixel density than you would have on the built in monitor on your MacBook Pro, which seems kind of silly to me to have this gorgeous screen and then not use it. Right, so what you need is a graphics adapter that has mini DisplayPort on it. Which, yeah, or, doesn't really Or, exist. hold up, hold up. Do any of the other adapters have regular DisplayPort on them? There is there is no way to get any DisplayPort signal into either of the LG Ultrafine monitors. You can't you can't do DisplayPort to mini DisplayPort? They, they only have USB-C or Thunderbolt 3 input. There is no DisplayPort input on them. 
All right. I'm just, ah. It's frustrating. So, you know, hopefully this is something that the market is going to address going forward. There is a graphics card uh, that it was announced by one company that is going to offer USB-C out, but it is not. Yeah, the MicroStar one, MSI. But that is the only one that's been announced. Nobody else has shown much interest in it because it's not the default for monitors. And the ones that uh, that are compatible that do, um, you know, uh, mini display port or whatever are 24 inch 4K monitors, which have a pixel density of around 180 uh, pixels per inch, which is considerably lower than uh, the 220 pixels per inch that is Apple's retina standard on a Mac. Okay, so the point is wait until this comes together. Correct. It's it's in beta um, until early or spring 2018, the eGPU feature. Wait till there are more graphics cards available. Wait till there are better monitors available. Apple's going to be making their own external monitors. They're getting back into that business. So if you want to dabble right now, you know, I mean, it's there are some nice monitors out there that you could use, but uh, it's not going to be that great of an experience um, and it's going to be expensive. You're better off waiting until next spring. Okay. Logitech Slim Combo Smart Connector Keyboard. Uh, I we talked about this a little last week. Just to touch on it very briefly, we published our review. I, you know, I don't hate it. It's not a product for me. If you like to turn your iPad into a laptop um, and you don't really mind the bulk, that's fine. I don't understand why they have this like lip around the outside of the case that goes on the iPad itself. Um, I think they kind of messed up with that. I gave it three out of five stars. I think that there's a market of people out there that will really, really like this keyboard and be very happy with it. And if you know those flaws going into it, then, you know, it'll. I saw some people in the comments were very happy with this product uh, and then it's the perfect keyboard for them. That's fine. But I think a lot of people will be upset that it adds so much bulk to their iPad and kind of defeats the purpose of the slimness of the device. Okay. The 2017 MacBook Pro. Yeah, that just kind of loops back into what we were talking about with the external graphics cards. We published our review this week. Uh, Dan tested out the new MacBook Pro, um, and Max, uh, our video guy, also did some benchmarks and tested them out. Uh, The new processors are more powerful than expected from Intel, um, and they do a pretty good job of boosting and really justifying the the, the redesign, Thunderbolt 3, and all that sort of stuff. So uh, pretty exciting uh, time for the MacBook, um, you know, especially these higher-end touch bar models, uh, and a good time to buy if, if you're looking for a new Mac. Okay, the Hover Drone. Yeah, uh, so Mike did a review for us. I had tested this product out uh, last year as well. Um, It's portable. It folds up. It's cool. It's got a 4K camera. Um, It's good for, like, taking selfies or something that you want to take with you, like, you know, you're going hiking or something and you don't want to carry a big drone with you. But uh, it's a little pricey at 500 bucks. I can't really justify it at that price, and Mike felt kind of the same way, especially with the DJI Spark available now uh, that's so portable and priced the same and, and so much more powerful. Uh, I, yeah, I think between, that between hover and DJI, you're going to buy DJI. Yeah, I think if they drop, if they could, if they could drop this thing to three, even four hundred dollars, it'd be a, a much better value. Apple's pushing this thing hard. It's an Apple Store exclusive. I was at the Soho Apple Store the other day, and they had a big display for it. It was right next to the DJI ones. I, I think it's a really cool product. It launched at like six hundred bucks. Um, and it's just too much money. Um, it's more of a toy, um, but it's cool. Um, and I think that, you know, if, if you can get one on discount, it's definitely worth checking out. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about the Linksys Velop. We've talked about mesh routing before. And, you know, the, the Linksys Velop is one of the best mesh networking products from a networking standpoint in terms of signal dispersion and signal strength and speed. Uh, mesh networking is the idea that you have two Wi-Fi radios in each node, one to talk to the other nodes to make sure that, that the signal is distributed properly, and then one side for client radios. Network extenders work by having one radio and switching between talking upstream and talking downstream. Right. And the problem with a network extender is that you can 
both you're, you're cutting your speed in half for all of your clients because of this. And, and also you end up in situations where you have to manually switch between SSIDs because you have to name them with different SSIDs in order to make sure you're associating with the one nearest to you. If you don't do that, if you name them all with the same SSID, then you end up in situations where you're associated with one that has weak signal instead of switching to the one that has stronger signal. With mesh networking, like Linksys Velop, you keep yourself connected to the strongest one and you don't lose speed in the process. Uh, Linksys had some early teething problems with firmware back in January, but here in June, it's a better product. It's it's a refined product. The firmware is all fixed, and honestly, I was very impressed with it. What I note is that a lot of our readers go back and forth, either not understanding what mesh networking is, not understanding the problems with network extenders, or insisting that they're doing it right when all of the manufacturers recommend settings that say you must really use a separate SSID to make this work properly. Mm-hmm. Because they all know. Now, Apple did extending, but Apple always set it to be the same SSID when they did extend networks. And you just lived with the fact that you might get stuck on the one with weaker signal. Yeah, I do that with Airport Expresses. Yeah, and did you ever find you get stuck on a node that has slightly weak signal compared to your nearer one? Yeah, each one that you add actually halves your total um, uh, bandwidth. bandwidth, But the, the truth of that is it doesn't really affect your internet speed. It just affects transfer between devices at home because your internet speed is never as fast as the total bandwidth capability of your router. So, Well, you, you say that, but when you have gigabit, it does. Well, I don't have gigabit, so. Ah, well, there you go. If you're lucky enough to have gigabit, then yeah, don't do that. But you know, for most people, it's not going to be an issue. There you go. So my my summary of Lynx's Velop is good product. Um slightly clunky to set up and I wish I'd had a few more options. They wish they could have done a few things better. Like for instance, when you have a provider for your ISP that says you must use their modem and router and they won't let you turn off DHCP on theirs, then Linksys should have smartly turned off DHCP on their product. And they ask the question and then fail to turn it off. So there's a couple of wrinkles, but for the most part, it's really good. So I'll just chime in here and say, this is a perfect opportunity, Apple. I know that you screwed up a little bit with the Mac Pro. I know that you're getting back into the game there. I know that you're getting back into the monitor game. Let's get you back in the router game. Come on, baby. You know, let's let's get well, it. Let's get a new. Is- let's get a new Airport Express 802.11ac. <laughs> um, uh, AirPlay 2. Come on, come on. How how is making routers again going to help their stock value? Please. How, how is making monitors going to help their stock value? Fair enough. How is but making a Mac Pro going to help their stock value? Just what make they it. Have to prove, what do they have to prove about making wireless routers again? Uh, here's what they when, have to prove. They don't want they companies like D-Link it. making junk that gets people's information stolen or has a, a, a you know botnet created that takes down a third of the internet. Let's have reliable products that we can trust in our homes. Okay. Fair enough. Apple got into wireless because Cisco was making it too hard. They got out of it because everyone else had made it easy enough. Your proposition is they get back into it to make security better. They never left it. They still sell these products. They're just not updating them. They gotta. They have to maintain a certain level of quality that you expect. Setting up routers is a nightmare. It still is for most people. People go buy these Linksys routers that the are junk. Setup, the setup on these is not that hard. If you follow the steps in the app, it takes a few minutes, and you end up with a setup that works. Okay, but we- the, the, the ease has been solved. For the most part, it's the security that you're right about. How many people do you think are running the junk router built into their cable modem provided by Comcast or Time Warner? Uh, Unfortunately, everyone. Exactly. Fix that. You're letting crap companies uh, take over. You got to fix that by by no longer providing by buying the providers of those modems 
to the cable companies. <laughs> I'm just saying you, there's you end a up problem. buying you end up buying a Motorola and Pace and and oh god. All right. I'm, I'm just saying there's a problem in that market and it needs to be fixed and that is where Apple could step in. Don't abandon the router market. It's a junk market right now with junk companies pushing their crap on people and people are having bad experiences. Apple should stay in the market because they are in the business of making things simple and reliable and trustworthy. All right. On that note, I, I want to thank Neil Junk Hughes for being on the uh, episode 127 of the Apple Insider Podcast. Yes, sir. Neil, where can we find your junk on the internet? You can, you, well, <laughs> hopefully my junk isn't on the internet, but uh, uh, you can uh, oh, find no. you can find my musings on uh, appleinsider.com <laughs> and you can follow me on Twitter at this is Neil N-E-I-L. There will be no junk pictures on there, ladies. I am so sorry. Hate to disappoint. I am so, so sorry. That's all right. I'm I'm Victor Marks, and uh, you you should check out tapewrite.com slash at Scout or Scout Tech Podcast on iTunes. It's a very cool one. Neil and I are on it. You should listen. This has been Apple Insider episode 127, and we will see you back next week. <laughs>